When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. The FT. Welcome to this World Weekly special on the aftermath of the killing of Osama bin Laden. I'm Gideon Rachman. As the world watched scenes of jubilation in Washington following the death of Osama bin Laden, we ask what his killing means for the future of the war on terror. Joining me in the studio to discuss the subject are James Blitz, the FT's diplomatic editor, David Gardner, our international affairs editor, and on the line from Delhi, James Lamont, our South Asia bureau chief. James Blitz, I'll start with you. This is obviously an incredibly dramatic moment in the war on terror, in some ways a culmination of a quest America's been on ever since 9-11. But what does it actually mean for the overall picture for those trying to combat uh, the threat of terrorism? Well, it's a huge psychological blow, clearly, to the core al-Qaeda group of about 200 people that were following bin Laden in the Pakistani tribal areas, and also to all the affiliated groups, al-Qaeda in the Arab Peninsula operating out of the Yemen, al-Qaeda in the Maghreb operating in North Africa, and so on, because bin Laden was this huge spiritual figure, the founder of the movement, and he's pretty much irreplaceable. Net, however, if you actually look, what does this mean operationally in terms of the terror threat in Western countries in particular, it doesn't change very much. Bin Laden hadn't been doing very much for quite a number of years. He was largely disconnected from his network. There may have been some courier contact, which is what's coming out from what we've learned in the last 24 hours. But the fact is, he wasn't a major player. It's these other players in other areas, Anwar al-Awlaki in the Yemen, the group in the um, Maghreb, who are much more worrying today. People in Somalia, they're much more worrying today for Western intelligence services in the US and the UK. They've been behind the major plots. And the risk is, I think, that there will be an impression among Western publics that a huge turnabout has happened, a huge success has happened, and actually... What we will see is that these other groups will come along and produce something quite important in terms of terror attack in the next year or so. That's basically how I see the picture. And James Lamont in Delhi, one of the most remarkable things is where bin Laden actually was, so close to a major Pakistani military academy. This clearly must raise big questions about complicity between elements of the Pakistani state and al-Qaeda. And what does it do to U.S.-Pakistani relations? Well, that's right. I think that's the focus in the region at the moment, is exactly uh, the whereabouts where uh, bin Laden was found. The compound in the town of Abbottabad is really right at the doorstep of uh, one of Pakistan's major military installations, a, uh, a cadet college, a staff college. And today, Ali Zadari, Pakistan's president, has been at pains to try to say that Pakistan's army did not shelter bin Laden 
and really that he was there incognito. No one knew he was there. But I should think that's stretching the patience of many in the region, but also of Washington too, because the coincidence just seems almost too good to be true. And yet, is there much that Washington can do? I mean, presumably they're very angry about this, and they clearly were at pains not to work too closely with the Pakistanis. On the other hand, cutting Pakistan off without aid or taking other retaliatory measures would have all sorts of dangerous consequences. Well, there is not much they can do. I think Pakistani policymakers and diplomats are very familiar with Pakistan, that it uh, hunts militants but also supports militants and that different parts of the Pakistani polity and military see the affairs in this region very differently. I mean, they are in this together and they have to find ways of trying to work with the Pakistanis. I think what happened over the last couple of days makes that a little more difficult, but uh, in Washington they will still have to find strategies of trying to get compliance and cooperation out of Pakistan and trying to identify areas where they can make progress in the war against terror. The proximity of Osama to a Pakistani military establishment is a real shock in the region. And I think that, you know, there'll be certainly some taking stock on both sides in Washington and also in Islamabad, exactly what this means. And in the coming days, we'll certainly know more about how long he had been there and uh, whether or not he had received support uh, from elements within Pakistan. David Gardner, if I could turn to you now, what do you make of the impact of all this on the Afghan war? There is clearly an opportunity here, as has been pointed out, to move forward politically in Afghanistan now that the Afghan Taliban, which is in its essence a Pashtun insurgency, has no further need to cling to its residual relationship with al-Qaeda. But it seems to me that what James Lamont was talking about this curiously perverse symbiotic relationship between jihadi groups and elements of Pakistani military and intelligence highlights another problem. You will not be able to resolve Afghanistan discreetly, separately from the larger AFPAC problematic, which includes reaching some sort of detente between India and Pakistan and therefore getting to grips with the Kashmir question, because until that happens, you will not change the worldview of Pakistani generals and spymasters who will continue this destructive dalliance with an assortment of jihadi groups, only combating those that episodically threaten their own interests. So that is definitely a core aspect of the post-Bin Laden situation. And now to the Arab Spring. I mean, this all this happened at a very dramatic moment in the Middle East. Osama bin Laden, an iconic figure, if I can use that cliche. What does his death mean in the context of the Arab Spring? One of the single and most heartening aspects of the Arab Spring is that the jihadis in particular and the Islamist currents in general were nowhere to be seen when all this broke out. Now, the Islamists such as the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, Tunisia, and as of last week, even in Syria, have dashed to catch up, and they are a presence. But the jihadis simply didn't anticipate this. It figures absolutely nowhere in their their rather Manichaean prospectus for the region, which has lost traction for a number of reasons. One, because of the 
scale of the violence employed by al-Qaeda, particularly in Iraq, but elsewhere too. Um, the fact that they have killed Muslims from Baghdad to Riyadh. And they're a failure. They have absolutely nothing to offer. They tried for decades to bring down these regimes. What brought them down was an urban, secular, democratic youth movement using the tactics of civic insurgency. This pushes them right to the margins. Now, obviously, they will try and get back into the game in some form, both in reprisal for the bin Laden killing and because of their irrelevance. They will need to show that they are still alive and kicking. James Blitz, to bring you back in, if they need to show they're alive and kicking... When you talk to counterterrorism people, do they now still see the threat as primarily emanating from Pakistan? Or they perhaps, if you're looking, sitting in London, are you worried more about domestic terrorism, which may get some sort of inspiration from satellite television or, or whatever, but is is really based here now? Well, as I think I did earlier, I certainly think they regard what is coming out of the, the core AQ group in the Pakistani tribal areas as being less significant. That group of around 200 has been able to operate a bit in Afghanistan, but hasn't really produced any of the major terrorist threats we've seen in the last couple of years. They are enormously worried about Yemen. That is the number one worry, and in particular what is being done by Anwar al-Awlaki. I mean, I certainly agree with David that in many ways al-Qaeda is being marginalized in the Arab Spring, and now uh, bin Laden's death has compounded that sense. But the potential of these groups, like al-Laki in AQAP, al-Qaeda in the Arab Peninsula, is still very great. Just look at what he has. He has sophisticated bomb-making technology, which he showed in the East Midlands uh, cargo uh, operation that he did last year, where the bombs weren't found very easily. He's in a country which is imploding politically with the decline of the Saleh government. And he also has very significant internet presence. He speaks very good English, and he's able to groom people in the West, as we have seen in the United Kingdom and in the United States, who have tried to carry out murders. So that kind of thing is worrying people enormously. If you look at al-Qaeda in the Maghreb, that's another area. One of the things that's worrying Western intelligence agencies a lot about the Libya conflict is that in that conflict at the moment, there is an enormous amount of weaponry lying around on the ground, and that is being picked up and exported through porous borders by AQIM to Niger, Mali, and other areas where they are able to carry out potential attacks. So that is the kind of thinking that now exists in Western intelligence agencies. And I think the risk that there is for politicians is that they've given a sense that there's some kind of closure now with the so-called war on terror, but there isn't quite. There is the potential for these groups to do something significant in the period ahead. James Lamont, if I can end with you, I mean, you're sitting in in a country uh, which has itself been the victim of of massive terrorist attacks, which has uh, next door to Pakistan, where uh, it's historically been at war with on several occasions. How do they read what's been happening? How do the Indians read what's been happening in Pakistan? Is this something that they regard as a hopeful moment, the death of bin Laden, or are they braced for really quite dangerous fallout? Well, I think there's a move of, of I, I told you so here. I think the fact that bin Laden was found where he was in many Indian minds confirms some of their worst suspicions about the compact between the Pakistani authorities and military and, and militancy. They are bracing themselves for revenge attacks within Pakistan, but also possibly within India too. Of course, fresh in the memory here is the attack on Mumbai in 2008. 
Already we're seeing some statements out of Pakistan, some bellicose statements. The head of uh, Jamal Dawa, Hafiz Saeed, um, has, has made a statement today saying that Osama bin Laden should be regarded as a martyr and that he's preparing to lead prayers in memory of him. So I think that events on the ground here are going to be very interesting over the next few days to see what kind of response comes from bin Laden's death. But certainly, I mean, the Indians are, I'd say, on, on alert. They think that they may very well be a target of more attacks that emanate from Pakistan, and bin Laden's death is, is not going to stop that. James Lamont in New Delhi, thank you very much. That brings to a close this special edition of World Weekly. So my thanks to David Gardner and James Blitz here in the studio in London, to James Lamont in New Delhi. World Weekly is produced by LJ Filotrani. Goodbye for now. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.